to me, the most haunting verse in the whole Bible has to be seventh chapter of Matthew, verse 21, where Jesus says, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these great things in your name? And I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. Is that not haunting? Profoundly disturbing to think of a situation where someone would assume they're saved. Can you imagine you assume you're saved your whole life? You, hey, you know, you, you're on a Sunday school roll somewhere or you're part of a church somewhere to assume you're saved only to find out on that great and eternal day of judgment, depart from me, workers of iniquity, I never knew you. So you could have a situation where someone assumes they're saved just because of some nominal uh, experience or some, some, some you know, membership somewhere and, and not, in fact, be saved. So on the one hand, as a preacher, you've got to always have that in the back of your mind. Every Sunday after Sunday, you're preaching, and there may be somebody in attendance who is in that very place. Their souls are in peril, and you've got to plead with them that though they assume they're saved, they're not, in fact, saved. On the other hand, on the other extreme, I grew up, maybe you're like me, man, I grew up in a small country church, and it seemed like the theme of every single revival, and really most every Sunday, especially Sunday nights, was that very verse and that very theme preached to save people. Yeah, you think you know, but do you know that you know? And then we get more and more intense. Do you know? I mean, do you know that you know that you know that you know? Do you know that you know that you know? And I'm sitting there as a kid. Do you know that you know? I don't know. I did know. No. And then it would get more intense as the revival would go on. <clears throat> By night three of the revival, if you were to die in your sleep tonight, that's right, you close your eyes and sleep and die in your sleep. Do you know where you'd go if you go? Do you know that you know that you know where you'd go if you go? And I'm looking at my sister's 12-year-old like, I don't know. I'll tell you one thing. I am not going to sleep tonight. <laughs> so here you have this very real situation wherein as preachers we must honor Matthew chapter 7 verse 21 and we would never want to give false assurance to someone who is in fact bound for eternal hell. They're going to be separated from God forever and just what, they assume that they're saved and we don't acknowledge that. And yet on the other hand, I don't ever want to be in a place where it was almost like they sort of like created doubt. Unbelief, the Bible says, is a sin. I'm, as a pastor, I'm supposed to guard you against an evil heart of unbelief. And you're supposed to do the same for me, your brother. So I don't want to somehow encourage doubt. I would have given anything as a, as a child, as a teenager, to have a sermon series on assurance of salvation. Can we know? How can we know? And in the midst of all this confusion comes the clarity of 1 John. It's a letter we're going to be in the, near the end of the New Testament. You can go ahead and turn there now. And I'm titling this series from 1 John that you may know. One of the things, but one of the key themes is assurance of salvation. And it's going to talk about other things. And, and John here, <clears throat> the uh, 
uh, uh, letter reads more like a sermon, <clears throat> but unlike Paul's letters, which can be you know broken down and outlined, I love John's letters. It's just sort of themes, light and love, and he comes back to these themes and just kind of spiral more and more like a spiral staircase. And I lo- I love a preacher like that. No discernible theme. He just kind of goes for it. And him can't take notes, but here we have First John. Now, so I thought what we do today to kind of introduce the sermon series. We're going to be in First John for the coming week series. Uh, I thought the way to introduce it was we'll look at the who, the what, and the why. Got it? The who, John, who's the, uh, though, the uh, though the author of 1 John never identifies himself, uh, early church historians and tradition, the apostle John who walked with Jesus, who wrote the fourth gospel, who wrote the gospel of John. There is no compelling evidence to suggest. So most folks do take John as the author, and he is the apostle. He walked with Jesus, went with him. You remember all the way to the cross, saw in exile, lived a long life. He could have been as old as 100 years old when he wrote this letter. The old apostle, they called him the apostle. The apostle of love. You count how many times the word love is used in 1 John. And they would take this old preacher. And he, of course, he had, I mean, he walked with Jesus. And he was a pastor to this group of churches there. And they would take him out of Ephesus. And, and a group of, 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 of folks and caregivers would make, I mean, this is the John. Uh, uh, and he would get up there and he would preach. And they would all be gathered to hear. And, they, and he would preach. Now, can you imagine, would you like a one-sentence sermon? Well, two, it's never going to happen. So don't even, don't, even, don't even allow yourself to dream about such things. He would say, little children, love one another, because love comes from God. And he would leave, and he would walk down, and people would be like, <laughs> excuse me, we, we traveled a long distance here to hear you. You're the, you're the great John. Like, you, do you have another message? And he'd be like, Get back up. Love one another. The end. And they kept wanting something more, and he kept trying to get across to them, love comes from God. And according to ancient church historian Eusebius, that was his message, place after place he would go. He, he doesn't even call himself in the God in 1 John that God is love. So he's the apostle of love. That's who John is. But, and this is what's so great, you'd have never in a million years imagined this old boy would be the, God, the apostle of love. Do you remember what Jesus found? And John, they were part of Zebedee and Sons fishing company. Y'all know Zebedee and Sons. They were out on the lake. Uh, and then you get to Gennesaret, you head toward Rock Creek. Y'all know what I'm talking about? These were roughnecks. These good old boys, James and John, the, and, and Thunder. Yeah. Now you say, oh, you're making too much of that. Sons of Thunder. Am I? I can prove it. These, I know Peter, James, and John when it comes to violence. Do you remember? I can prove it. In, in, in Luke 9th chapter, in verse 54, when Jesus is set his face to go to John Boy, there wasn't like, you know, you couldn't stop at a hotel along the way. So he sends an advance delegation. He sends some disciples to Samaria to prepare the way. And they forget it. We don't want anything to do with Jesus. We don't want anything to do with his mission. Utterly rejected Jesus. And do you know what they said? Luke 9, 54. They look at Jesus. Let us. The key is let me and John, me and James here. We've been ready. <laughs> let us do it. Can we consume? Can we call fire from heaven and burn them? That's the apostle John. And then fast forward. And mister, let's burn them all the world but that the world through him might be saved. John 3, 17. What happened? You got the who, the apostle of love. What? What happened in a man's life that he goes from to little children? Let us love 
one another. He's still bold as a lion. You can see that in the letter. He doesn't mince and love to God and other people. What happened? And what happened is told to us in the first three verses of the letter. And this is a three. And we're really only going to look at about four verses, a couple extra, but not much more than that. And so we've got time. We can read one, two, three which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was magnified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Like I said, very tangled all over the place. So to try to untangle this sentence, I would put it this way. For, for clarity's sake, here's what I think he's saying in 1 through 3. If we, and, and for now, hold on to the parentheses of verse 2. We might say something like this. We proclaim to you concerning the word of life what was from the beginning, which we object of our proclamation is fellowship. Enjoy. Okay? So we're proclaiming this. What is he proclaiming? We're proclaiming the gospel. That the word was with God. The word was God. So John is very comfortable when he talks about the gospel message, which is all the way back from the beginning, is Jesus doing some incredible theology here in these three verses, fighting off two heresies at once. And here they are. Starting to develop, they've now spun off from the church. John will talk about them later. They prove they were never really part of the fellowship. They were never, they were never. And this group over here, it could be the Gnostics or an early version of the Gnostics or maybe the Docetists. Their thing was, um, actually over here is a group that said Jesus was not God. He was a great prophet. Human being, but no, no way he was God, okay? So is bad. Matter is evil. Flesh and blood is wicked, and it's all carnal and sinful. It's the spirit that God really cares about. So as long as heresy, they teach like, like when he ate, he, he like appeared to nibble at food, but he never actually ate because he was more like a, like a ghost, you know? And so um, these people are basically saying, Jesus wasn't really God, and these people are saying, he wasn't really man. And here John says, God, he was absolutely man. Absolutely, God. How so? Go back and look at go back and look at verse one. That which was truth. There was never a time when Jesus did not exist. Jesus, the God, has existed from before time began. There has never been a point where Jesus was did not exist. Jesus has always been, always been. Eternal God, Jesus took on human flesh. He took a body. We call that the incarnation. He came, was born of a virgin, born of Mary. There's a point in time where he took a body, but he always has existed. So he is the eternal God, that which was from the beginning, eternally begotten of the Father. No, we've heard, we've seen with our eyes, we've looked upon. That means examined closely. That's different than just saw. We examined closely, but then we saw. But then we looked real close. Then we touched, right? And we felt it. You see the increasing degrees store that is not your usual grocery store. You're unfamiliar with this grocery store. It's like the, the, the visitor stadium. Um, it's not your home team because they've heard they, everywhere else is sold out, but they have apples. And you haven't been able to get apples because of uh, supply chain issues or something. You've heard, you've heard they have apples and you're so excited. And you go and you ask some of the customers there that are exiting. And sure enough, you've heard, you've been lied to before. <laughs> you've been hurt. <laughs> By apple lies. <laughs> that's, that's odd. I didn't, I didn't really. Then you do what? Then you want to what? You want to see him with your own two eyes. So then you make your way to the produce aisle, and there, oh, 
there are closer inspection because you, you, you want to see what kind of apples, right? Some one bad apple spoils the bunch. You want to see it. But even that, it's not the old. Your hands have handled. You touch. You handle all the apples like all of the customers before you have handled these apples that you eat, right? And so you, Jesus, uh, John here says, we didn't just hear, hey, you know, Jesus is alive from the testimony of the women coming back from the tomb. We saw him. And then he looked at us. Guard my side. Put your hand here and touch. Remember in, uh, in, in Luke, uh, apparently Jesus knew they were going to spread these rumors. That, that's why he ate and drank in front of them. He's showing them this is a bodily resurrection. So he deals with this deep theology on, on his life was made manifest, verse 2. And we've seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was always been with God the Father. Everybody got that straight? There's, there's no room for heresy here. Jesus is eternally God, and then he took on, I won't get us lost in the weeds. We'll zoom in quickly, but we'll zoom right back out so that we don't get lost. But I want to zoom in because of two, I think, really cool details. The first, notice the two verbs, they mean the same thing. He says, here's the gospel. We've seen the risen Lord. We see Jesus. We testify to it and proclaim to it. What did he say, testify and proclaim because those are two words that mean almost the same thing but not quite when you test experience I've experienced something I can testify to it when you proclaim this is the difference a news reporter is commissioned to proclaim the news but an eyewitness testifies to what I've seen and heard share your faith are you doing it under the authority of testimony I have experienced or the authority of commission I have been sent Yes, you have the authority of, you have been commissioned by Christ to proclaim the gospel and you have the testify and proclaim. That's the first thing I thought was cool. The second, I would have never noticed, but John Stott's incredible, starts the verse with manifest and ends it. Look, the life was made manifest. We've seen it, we testify, we proclaim, and then he ends manifest to us. What's important about the to us? Stott said Jesus had taken a body, but never let anybody know that he had done it. What if Jesus had become manifest in the flesh, but revealed himself to us? It's one thing to be made manifest. It's another to be made manifest to us. This is the grace. Human beings can apprehend only that which God is pleased to make known. We can't know him to us. Do you understand the difference in saying Jesus came, he, he was made manifest. There's a big difference in saying he was made manifest and oh me, I experienced him. This is the grace of God to not only make himself manifest, to not only, well, it's perfectly okay with saying if you want to know what I look like, look, you know, look to Jesus. If, if, if you want to know what I'm like, look to Jesus. Manifest to us. Uh, you, you know the one about the, the little boy is, doing artwork, he's drawing on the kitchen table, on his, he's got his little construction paper, and he's got his crayon, feverishly scribbling, working so hard, so earnestly. The dad walks in, uh, what are you working on so hard over there? What are you, what are you? And the dad laughs, he says, well, that's, that's great, son, but like, you know, like, like nobody's, well, they will in just a minute! <laughs> you want to know what God looks like? says he is the image 
of the invisible God. So if you look to Jesus, one of the first things you'll say is, well, God must be a God of truth. It must be a God of holiness. Why? Because everything he did was pure and right and just and fair and wise. And if you look to Jesus, you'll say, well, now I know God must, because he stretched out his arms and died for us on a cross. So I can tell the attributes of God by he has revealed and not just, not just took a body. And now we pull back out of the weeds. Thank you for that detailed look at verse 2. That three days after his crucifixion, he saw Jesus dead, crucified. Three days later, saw him risen from the dead. That experience, that it not just happened, but have vindicated Jesus, and everything Jesus said was, was true and right, and so putting our faith in him gives us eternal life, because now we're in. to it, I have to proclaim the gospel. That's what happened. That's how the old son of thunder becomes, examined him, touched him, knows him, experienced him. So, that's the who, the what, and finally, why preach the gospel? In fact, that's a, that's a question, that's a good thought question you might think about. Why should any of us preach the gospel? Why should you ever share the of salvation with others? I think if you're like me, you would answer it, well, goodness, uh, because I, I, that God has for them, I want them to know the plan of salvation so that, you know, they can be with God forever, when they die, like they can be saved, saved from their sins. I don't want them to die and go to hell and be forever separated from God. I want them to know God. So I, I would say the answer is, like, John says he proclaims the gospel. He wouldn't deny any of that, by the way. If you read the rest of the letter, and you will, he, he, he won't deny fellowship. <laughs> so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. Isn't that something? Of all the reasons to pre preach the God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, have been in perfect triune love, and that perfect love, and they're saying, hey, come on, come on, come join this. Other apostles join them, and some other eyewitnesses join them, and more disciples join them, and now this big family of faith wrapped up in the triune God's going, come, 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 come on home. Hey, reason to share the gospel is fellowship with God and God's people. Fellowship, what a word, sharing, koinonia. I grew up in a small country church, and fellowship was, you didn't have these snacks. That's a, I'm, I mean, <laughs> But it was a little foretaste. And those dear old, I know, there's fellowship there in the family of God. Fellowship. So, so I, I have to do this thing that I have to do every time I open a new, tell you what I do. I, I have to cover the first few verses of the letter, but I also at least try to overview the whole thing. So for you, wrote it. He tells you why I wrote this letter. Here's why I'm writing it. So this is why we're studying it. And the first reason is fellowship. So why should you come back every Sunday? That we may have fellowship. What, verse, what a transactional understandings of salvation. What a rebuke this is to that. To somebody who's God's people, I don't really care about joining a church. I don't really care about any of that stuff. I'm, I'm just good with God. I got my Bible and I got my YouTube and I listen to my faith. Are you crazy? What? That, What? Of course you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ by which you are now connected to the Father and you're connected to the Father. That means we're not just, no, we're not just fellowship as in, hey, we're all part of the same club. No. Right? If God's your Father and God's my Father, that means I'm your brother. You got me. <laughs> Sorry. With all who believe. Why? Because our Heavenly Father. There's a story about a famous British. He was leaving Liverpool by ship, one of these great ocean liners. 
And he noticed that all the other passengers, as the ship was just moments departing, all these other passengers were waving to loved ones, family and friends on the dock. And uh, he had uh, no one. And the lad, of course, took the money, agreed, and the rider rushed back on board, and he leaned over the rail. And, and sure enough, there was that little boy waving back to him. Now I ask you, is that a fool? Or does it reveal that in our quieter moments, when we're not feeling so high and mighty, we all need somebody to wave back at us? One of the great, one of the great monsters that frightens every human is loneliness. And the gospel solves the base of loneliness. And so John proclaims this, that you may have fellowship forever. You see what I did? I just went through the letter and found where John said, I'm writing these things to you. Here's why I'm writing this. Here's why I'm writing this. I thought if John were willing to say, here's why I'm writing, okay, well then here's why we'll study it. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. I love that, our joy. You, you can't separate what I just said about the fellowship and the family of God. You can't separate, blessed you with a wonderful family and you love each other and it's a big family and you were all able to get together. COVID and everything disrupted, but there was a day where you were all able to get together for the, or the joy. You'd go, huh? What are you talking about, the fellowship of the joy? It's two sides of the same coin. You can't, you can't separate that. Exactly. Share joy. Uh, most manuscripts... Uh, say that our joy may be complete, but some may, your joy, I think John himself would laugh at that. He'd go, yeah. <laughs> is it our joy or your joy? Yes, John is the heart of a pastor. Oh, they say, uh, I know, what do they say? If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. I've heard that, you know, and I, I'm sure there's some, some truth to that. I don't know what they mean. Uh, breaks their heart is when their kids aren't happy. And what I don't just mean happy, uh, uh, you know, a kind of path for their child, ultimately. When you strip it all down, all the activities and all the extracurriculars and all the stuff, and you want them to be well-balanced, you want them all these things, at the end of the day, if you had one word, what you want for joy in their brothers and sisters, joy in me as their parents, a, a life of joy. That's what John wants. He says, I, I, it gives me no joy to hear that some of your children are walking in the truth. So, fellowship, joy. Here's a third one. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that, ah, Look, at this is from chapter 2, verse 1. I have to dive a little bit into coming in. You may not sin. So the third reason is holiness. Got it? That we may have fellowship, that we may share joy, and number sin. Now listen, if, if you think of sin, if you still think of sin as that fun thing you really let you do, then this book won't make any sense to you. But some of you know better, don't you? And you think of sin properly. You think of sin as the spiritual cancer that is right now eroding your joy and your peace and your hope. And you'd give anything to be free. And that's why I want us as a church. I want us to read First John. Every day. Yeah, the 8 a.m. did the same thing. You hear all the pages flipping? Everybody's like, how long is this? Yeah, 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 yeah. But you flip the pages? I love you so much because you're taking me serious. To the ones who didn't are like, nah, nah. <laughs> just, just kidding. Maybe. Um, it, uh, so I timed it because I know this is a tall order. Uh, but to read this book as a church together every day, some of you read faster than I do. And so you'll get it done in five to seven minutes. Others of you read slower, and so it's skiing. 
if this is what's at stake, y'all, if it was written that we may have fellowship, that we may share joy, that we may not, and even if you say, well, I, I'm not uh, reading and I get distracted and all that stuff, then get, get a Bible app get, get, and just, just press play and have someone read it in a beautiful British accent. <laughs> that which was from the beginning. You know? And you can speed it up. That was from the beginning. Anyway, uh, but, uh, but if we did this uh, every day, if you were to do this, why? Because th- that's why he wrote it. And John is, is like um, uh, hard, hard candy, like a peppermint. I mean, First John especially. Um, hard candy, when you um, uh, just bite down on it, you break a tooth. And so you, 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 you have to suck on it for, and distills its sweetness over time. And I think that's how we need to get First uh, John into us. So uh, these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you so that we may have fellowship, we may share joy, we may not sin, we may not be deceived. John wants his people <laughs> to have theological certainty in an age of theological vagueness. What do I mean by that? Uh, right now, it is arrogant uh, if you have any degree of certainty about anything. So you, what you're supposed to say is, well, I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't know. How can we know? But um, anyway, I believe in God, right? But to say, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. I've experienced him. Well, no, I, I, you know, that's seen as error. Don't believe him of the conversation. Hey, uh, somebody says, uh, a bunch of your friends sitting around. Hey, I, know, I, know, um, I noticed you're like, like really religious. I see you're always going to church. I noticed your Bible. Well, here's an open door. And so you say, well, I, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm a Christian, and you share some basic uh, tenets of the gospel, and this is a public institution. Not at all. Not at all. I think what they would say is, that is so awesome that you found what works for you. That's so cool that you found what, I love, I love that, that it like works for you. Bill has something that works for him. Bill, what works for you? Bill talks about, well, here's what works for me. And then like Sue is still struggling. I haven't really found yet what works for me, but I'm gonna take Bill's suggestions and Lisa's. All kind of like found what works for us and nobody's daring to say like, no, but it not only works for me, it's like universally true. We're just saying like it works. And if God the Father, and there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Yeah, exactly. Everybody be like, okay, that does not work for me, right? What happened? They would say, how? But is that logically, is that arrogance? Is being certain the same as being arrogant? Are there Christians who have come across boasting? How are you going to boast? Who boasts about getting rescued? You boast about your rescuer. So you clearly don't understand the gospel if you're bragging about what a lost sinner you were. Okay, uh, uh, you don't understand the God. Anyway, nonetheless, could Christians come across as arrogant? Sure. But, but, but what John's going to say is, hey, 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 you don't need to be arrogant, but you need not be, you need not be <sighs> waffly. You, it's okay. You can boldly proclaim. And when someone says, so you actually really do. Why? Oh, the eyewitnesses. Let me take you to 1 John. Okay. This leads to the final reason. And this is where I got the, the idea for the title for the whole series. I write these things to you, 1 John 5, 13. Christians, that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know you have eternal life. Do you ever wonder, is it truly possible to know you're saved? Then this is your book. So, note takers, here it is. We have fellowship, that we may share joy, that we may not sin, that we may not be deceived, and that we may know we are saved. 
This is kind of a spoiler alert, but John's going to give us which the believer can know they're saved. I use the word test very cautiously. In fact, I need a different word than test because when people think test, they think of the gospel. Tests are indicators of what's already there. Uh, I got it. When John says test, uh, think COVID test, not math. Got it? A math test is like this thing and you're anxious and will I pass? And a COVID test simply reveals what you got or don't got, Okay. Uh, so better would be three indicators, haters. Here are the three indicators. The truth test, the obedience test, the love test. There's a theological, a moral, and a social indicator. They believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They've got the truth right about who Jesus was. Uh, uh, Obedience-wise, someone who's truly saved is always, I write this that you may not sin. He says, but if you do sin, you've got an advocate in Jesus Christ. What he's talking about is an ongoing pattern of sin with no desire to repent. He says, that shows me there's not really been heart transformation and you're not saved. The obedience test. Live righteously. Even when they stumble and fall, they're falling that way. They're falling toward the Lord in the trajectory of their obedience. And then the love test. Nobody who, nobody who continues to hate their brother can be saved. Why? Because that means the love of God hasn't yet truly wrecked your heart. And, uh, and so, it's, I, but I promise we will definitely get to those as we go through the series. I assume. I haven't written them yet, but probably. <clears throat> At this time, our musician's gonna come and lead us in a time of response. I, I think about the ultimate assurance. You know, I titled this whole thing that you may know, and it got me thinking. In every other religion, technically, you can never really have what I'm offering in 1 John, what 1 John is offering. And that's you can never really have assurance. You can never really know if you're good with whatever your conception of God is. Why? Because it's all based on how you live. Now, I, I, hey, can you know that you're going to go to heaven and be with Allah when you die? Can you know that? They think it's prideful and presumptuous to say, yeah. they think that's prideful. So what they'll say is, um, I hope so, or if Allah wills, or, right? Or something that says, like, I, I they cannot say, I absolutely know beyond a shadow of a doubt, I will be with God forever and ever. But think about why. Because the verdict's not in yet on their life, Right? The whole religion is based on how they live their life, but they're not dead yet. So there's still life to be. Who knows how they're going to live in the future? And they won't know until Allah puts it on the scales and weighs out the good over the bad deeds to determine whether they get in. That secular mindset. Think about it. Haven't you heard this? Doesn't matter what you believe. Doesn't matter what religion you go to. All that matters is how you live, y'all. It matters if you're going to be a good person. Are you a moral person? Are you a decent person? The verdict is in how you live. God, Why? Because the verdict's not in yet. You don't, you don't know. You'll never really know because it's based on your life. Every other religion is based on your life. Christianity, the gospel, is the only place in the world where your assurance to be with God forever is not based on your the life of another. It's based on how Jesus of Nazareth lived. And then he stretched out his arms and he died. And then on the third day, he was brought back, John touched him, and that means God put the stamp of approval on his life. He's good with God forever. The verdict, if you will, is in total assurance, because our assurance is not based in how we live in our life. Our assurance is based in his life, and if we are in Christ, with God the Father, and in Christ, and if we are in him, then we rest in him. Why? Because his verdict's already in and vindicated by God at the resurrection on Easter Sunday morning and lives forever to intercede for us. He's got all power in his hand. So anyone in Christ can rest in full assurance. 
So do you need to be reminded of this great gospel? Do you need encouragement and love? Do you need to settle once and for all the matter of your salvation? Assurance of salvation? Then come back next Sunday. And come back every Sunday after that. And read 1 John every day. That you may know. Let's pray. I'd grant to anyone who is going to go through this series, 1 John, and it is going to be so convicting and it will be revealed the appearance of what looked like faith, but they've never been saved. And this is going to be, uh, it's going to mean salvation for them. I pray for them. For those who have been saved for years and years and yet the enemy still plagues them with doubt and still tries to mess with them and give them a bunch of lies. And I pray that this book which sweet treasures over time will give to us assurance that we will experience the fellowship and the joy, deception and the, the assurance that the whole with which the author wrote it and gave it to us. I want it for us, Lord. I want that. Grant that to us.